Good evening. I'm Marcus Leader, and I would like to invite you on a journey of discovery as I pull back the veil and give you a glimpse of the multiverse through the eyes of a Toltec shaman. So sit back, relax, turn up the volume, and turn down the lights. You're now listening to The Shaman's Brew. If you fear one thing in your life, fear the jinn. An ancient Arabian legend says that God made humans from mud and clay, angels from light, and the jinn from smokeless fire. In the Western world, many people readily accept the idea of angels and demons, but most have no knowledge of the jinn, called God's other people. According to legend, the jinn were the first inhabitants of this world, where they lived for thousands of years before humanity arrived. In order to make room for humans, angels took the jinn out of this world and placed them in a dimension that parallels our own. There they stay hidden from our view. They have the ability to see and interact with us, but we have difficulty seeing them. They are cloaked in mystery, and it suits their covert purpose. The goal of most Jinn is to retake this world, which they feel rightfully belongs to them. In order to succeed, they must first make humanity give up stewardship of this reality. They are accomplishing this by stealth and disguise. They have great powers and plenty of time, for they live for centuries. Shape-shifting Jen may be responsible for many forms of paranormal phenomenon and experience, such as UFOs, shadow people, ghosts, poltergeists, and demonic possession. In such ways, they gain access to us that enables them to steal our life force and information about us and to manipulate and use us without revealing their true form and purpose. These negative experiences are on the rise. In their new book, The Vengeful Jen, authors Philip J. Imbrogno and Rosemary Ellen Guiley, two of the leading experts on the paranormal, present the findings of their in-depth investigation of the Jen, who they are, what they're doing, and how can they be countered. Rosemary and Phil have established JinUniverse.com as an educational website about these mysterious and powerful beings. To learn more about the Jen and their actions in our world, be sure to order your copy of their groundbreaking and revealing book, the Vengeful Jen on the link provided on the homepage. All copies are autographed by both Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Phil Imbrogno. So be sure to visit jinnuniverse.com. That's D J I N N universe.com. The Jin may be one of the greatest dangers to ever present itself to the human race. Now their mask is off. Yes, indeed. 
Do the jinn, in fact, pose a threat to humanity? What are the reported characteristics of these mysterious creatures, and could they be connected to various phenomenon that we are experiencing today? Tonight we will explore some of these questions in depth in a conversation with the authors of The Vengeful Jen, Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Phil and Brogno. I am also very fortunate to have my very good friend and colleague, the brilliant Tracy Savage, as my co-host tonight. We are going to talk about this topic from both a scientific perspective as well as a shamanic one. As a result, we will be touching on topics not often explored in most talk shows. We will be releasing never-before-released information about my own experience with similar creatures while in my eight-year Toltec apprenticeship with Dr. Castaneda. Could these creatures I encountered also be gen-related? Be sure to listen to the complete interview and then decide for yourself. We have a very interesting show for you tonight as we welcome Rosemary Ellen Guiley and Phil Brogno to the Shaman's Brew. I am also very fortunate to have uh, Tracy Savage as a co-host tonight as we talk to Rosemary and Phil about their new book, The Vengeful Jinn, which examines the folklore and legends of this ancient and powerful entity in a new light with the possibility of some very disturbing connections to our modern world. However, before we get uh, started, let me make uh, some introductions. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts in the paranormal and supernatural fields. She has written more than 40 books, including nine encyclopedias, as well as hundreds of articles. Rosemary makes numerous appearances on radio and in documentaries as a, and is a frequent guest on the radio show Coast to Coast with George Norrie. Her uh, website is www.visionaryliving.com. Uh, Philip J. Brogno has researched paranormal phenomenon for more than 30 years and is recognized as an authority in the field. He has been interviewed by the New York Times, appeared on NBC's Today Show and Oprah, and has been featured in documentaries on the History Channel, A&E, and Lifetime, as well as HBO. Rosemary and Phil have established GenUniverse.com uh, as an educational website, and you can you can go there to find out more about it and order their their new book, The Vengeful Gen, uh, by going to www.GenUniverse.com, and that's spelled with a D, uh, D J I N N Universe.com, and. Uh, with that, we'd like to to welcome you to the show, you know, Phil and Rosemary. Thank you very much. Thanks. Glad to be here. Uh, we're we're happy to have you, and uh, you know, we'd like to kind of explore this and learn a little bit more about it, uh, because you know, honestly, for uh, you know, I, I've been researching the paranormal and. Uh, various related fields since well my first paranormal investigation was 1971 I was still in high school but uh, I've been I've been doing it for a lot of years and I've heard of the gen but 
I've always considered it the way I think a lot of people do it. It's more of like uh, you know something you see on TV or legend or myth, and I never really gave it much uh, consideration, you know, as a legitimate uh, entity. And you know, after talking with Rosemary and um, and uh, you're reading a little bit about it, some of the work you've done, it's uh, things are starting to click. And although I don't know that they are connected, you know the with all paranormal entities, I think there's a possibility that they are with uh, with several that uh, we have, you know, named or, or or seen in other cultures, and um, you know, so it's you know, it was kind of an an eye opener for me, you know, as I look at the possibilities that this uh, this type of entity may be uh, more than just myth; it may be uh, widespread through through several different cultures. So let let me start off by asking you know, both of you, what drew you you know to the gen, and uh, how this book actually came about. Well, for me, uh, my interest started in earnest back in the 1980s when I was doing a lot of research on uh, magic, especially uh, Solomonic magic uh, and angels and uh, demons as well, and that's when I came across the gin. Um, especially in relation to the story of King Solomon, who was said to command the jinn to build the Temple of Jerusalem. And uh, I was familiar with genies in folktales, which is basically how the jinn entered Western culture, just through um, stories like the Arabian Nights. Uh, And I found them to be very exotic and intriguing, so I wanted to know more, but there wasn't a whole lot available on the market. And uh, I just sort of kept them on my radar uh, over time. And uh, when Phil and I started collaborating and uh, discussing our our mutual interest in the gin, we were already deep into researching entity contact experiences. And it just suddenly started making sense that cases that are difficult to explain, defied explanation and resolution, could be attributed to the gin. Hmm. Yeah, that uh, th- that's kind of the way that um, you know it hit me as I started seeing some of the correlations, even within my uh, my own lineage. Uh, Phil, I don't know if you you know know too much about me, but uh, in uh, the early seventies, I uh, met and befriended uh, Dr. Carlos Castaneda in the UCLA library. And years later, we uh, went on, and I entered into a um, one-on-one apprenticeship with him. So I was trained for eight years in Toltec shamanism. And uh, some of the entities and some of the um, uh, creatures and things that uh, is in that lineage, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more in depth later, but uh, some of those creatures, you know, seem to parallel some of the the uh, stories of the gen, and I never really made that connection until just uh, recently, probably about a month ago. And I, I talked with you a little bit, uh, Rosemary, about that on the phone one time. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's that's what you know kind of stopped me, and I said, "Oh, wait a minute here. There's there may be more to this uh, legend than than a lot of the other legends that we uh, you know that we uh, read about or hear about." And um, you know that's that's what piqued my interest in it. 
Now, Phil, was it uh, kind of the same with you? I know, I know you have done a lot in uh, ufology and uh, and you know dimensional uh, portals, things like that that you've written about in the past. Is is that something that you worked on um, and studied for a long time, or is this something recent for you? No, you know, my interest in the gin goes back to the 1990s, and um, I really hadn't thought too much about them before. Uh, you know, I was primarily involved with UFO research, and, you know, at the time in the 70s and the 80s and so on, going into the 90s, I mean, it, it's an exciting possibility when you're investigating UFOs to think that you're dealing primarily with alien visitors from another star system coming here in exotic spaceships on some type of benevolent scientific mission or something. I mean, you know, if you're really a Star Trek fan and you get into that, I mean, investigating UFOs could be very exciting. However, um, during my investigations, we came across cases that involved, you, they were UFO-related, whereas there was contact, there was abductions, there was unusual lights, but the cases seemed very, very bizarre. And after a while, after looking at a number of these cases, I began to realize that there was something else involved, that all UFO so-called abductions, cases, contacts, or whatever, they're not all the same. Some of them take on a very bizarre, a diabolical almost, I should say, um, sort of angle, whereas um, there's a very real force there that seems to want to remain secret and hidden and would do anything necessary to stay hidden. Well, <clears throat> um, at that time, you know, I really didn't think about the idea of dimensional entities, even though witnesses who I talked with they actually said these dark portal areas opened up and these entities came through and they looked something like gargoyles. They looked something like something out of uh, uh, medieval uh, descriptions of demonic entities. Well, in the 1990s, um, I started um, getting a lot of interest in, in a lot of historical stuff and Really, I was over in, the, in, in Israel, actually, and I kept on hearing stories of uh, something called the jinn, 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 jinn. And I heard it all the time, and people were mentioning jinn in their stories or mentioning in the market, and like, like these things were very, very real. So finally, I asked someone who I was friends with, I said, well, what is a jinn? A person who was uh, um, with Arabic background, and he said we explained what the jinn was, and I started laughing. He said, "Well, you know them as the genie," and I started laughing because so I thought of Barbara Eden, you know, and Robin Williams, and <laughs> and all that, you know. And I said, and they said, "No, no, no, that's this is not something to laugh about. They are very, very real." So I started picking up stories of the jinn and people's encounters. And I was told the place that I would have to go was uh, Saudi Arabia. So luckily, see, at that time, I knew someone who was um, actually uh, 
um, a uh, uh, in charge of the Saudi royal family security, someone who I served with in the military. And to make a long story short, he got me into Saudi Arabia, and I did a lot of research there. He introduced me to a lot of places. I actually had dinner with one uh, one of the members of the royal family in sort of like a banquet, and it was so surprising because... Um, I'm sitting at the table, and my friend Jack is with me, and he's, he's got the rank of colonel in the Saudi Army back then, security force. And the cousin of the prince, uh, who, who, well, the, 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 the prince of the prince, the son of the king was supposed to be there, but he couldn't make it. Uh-huh. He just looks over to me and he says, Why are you in my country? You are an American? <laughs> I said, I'm researching the jinn. And he yells almost at the top of his voice, Jin! He goes, they are in my country. He says, your government and my government has been trying to capture one. And uh, he started telling me the story about how there's this special operation in the world that the the government, certain governments know that these entities that have been known as Jin have been filtering into our reality and that they actually come from another dimensional reality that's close by. So the government of Saudi Arabia and the United States and France, I think, was involved also in Germany and some of the Arabic countries, including Turkey, figured that if these entities, they must have some type of technology to do this. So their main goal, it seems, and I heard this story from several different sources. Their main goal was to capture one of these beings and, what else, steal the technology. Well, anyway, to make a very long story short about my adventures over in the Middle East, I ended up in Oman and uh, ended up in a place called Majas al-Jin. And, um, you know, this was called, this is a giant cave called the Meeting Place of the Jinn. And there, um, I was there with my guide and my um, interpreter and, and so on. And there's only one way into this cave of the jinn, and that's lower repelling downward um, 300 feet from a hole that's in top of the ceiling. Uh-huh. And um, as I'm repelling down, about halfway down, I see this mist green mist coming up from the bottom. I'm saying, what the heck? And and it sounded like the echoes in the cave that there was voices. And all of a sudden, I hear screaming above me, and these two people, one of them was a captain in the Saudi military force, he was going, he was screaming, um, I don't know what they were talking, because they were talking in Arabic, but I heard one word that I was familiar with, jinn. And I look up and they're gone. So, of course, I had to climb out, and as soon as I climbed out, they're running down the hill towards the car, and I'm yelling, and he's yelling back, we got to get out of here, because they heard a jinn, they said. A jinn told them to get out of there and get me out of there, or he was going to kill them. So, driving back in the vehicle from the Hajar Mountains all the way to Finn, um, you know, I encountered a number of different people uh, in the village who also had encounters. And actually, they got incredibly upset with me because they thought I woke up this sleeping gin and there was going to be retribution. Um, well, um, 
I was practically asked to leave the town, not very politely. Yeah. And uh, But really, from that moment on, my intense interest in the gin began. And uh, I ended up spending the rest of my time there in Syria and um, part of Iraq and, um, and, and mostly Saudi Arabia. But the stories I picked up were incredible. The people over there believe these beings are real. It's not like stories or fairy tales. They live with them. It's like part of their life. Yeah, and, and Tracy, you know, you can jump in there anytime. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to add to that. Or <laughs> well, I, I have a question uh, with regard to um, uh, the different areas that you were in. I, you had a, a, a wide range of travels there. Did you see uh, uh, a change in the attitude about the gin and, and contact with uh, depending on where you were at, I mean, I know that they have an awful lot of um, trepidation with regard to even talking about it in some areas. That it's it's considered, you know, dabbling in superstition and a big fat no no. So in Saudi Arabia, it's um, you, you run into uh, more westernly educated people, and to them, um, to the very poor people, which you know is a great majority of that. Uh, that country. In that country, you have the very rich and the very poor. There's nothing in between. Uh, to the people who were the peasants, the poor people living in the gin were, were real. Um, to the more educated class, they were myths that um, they really didn't know if they believed in them or not because, uh, um, because it's, it, they're lost in, the, in the history. Um, but as you get into uh, Oman in some of the capital areas and but as you go into the country, the idea of the jinn is very real, and they look at them with great respect. In other words, um, these are beings, people. They're another type of people that live up in the mountains, and this is where they come into our world, but you respect them. Now, in Syria, the feelings toward the jinn are just downright terror and fear. Mm -hmm. So it depends upon where you go and how they look at the, the idea of jinn. Um, in some countries, it's you're to respect them, and um, some countries, are they myths? Are they real? Question mark. Um, and in other countries, outright terror. Uh, when when you are, um, how did you approach even discussing this with them? I, it's 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 a curious thing. It's not an open, free dialogue there like it is here. You know, we have so much media, and and there, there, there's uh, there's just a lot more control about certain subjects. How did you? Uh, did, I can't imagine what how you started the conversation with these people. It just is well, interesting to me. Yeah, I didn't. Um, an American going over there or European is is not going to be uh, is not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. However, as I said, in Saudi Arabia, I had a very good friend who I served with in the military, and <clears throat> he actually set up 
a meeting with uh, a holy man at one of the sections of town, town in, in, and um, the, his right-hand man, who was a captain, Yaramish, I called him Yar, um, he actually acted as my interpreter and brought me through the town to introduce me, of course, by order of my friend Jack, and of course the the minister who was the cousin of the um <clears throat> the, the royal family also um arranged for me to have um a passport into this area so i was introduced because i had a person who was very high ranking in the royal family security force that was with me the captain and um, he acted my, as my interpreter in my introduction. When he appeared, he got great respect. So my first stop was with this holy man, and I don't even remember his name because all the Arabic names, I can't remember them. But we were there for about an hour and a half, two hours, and I could only ask one question, and I could not get into a discussion with him. Right. Had I known that, of course, I would have gotten a whole list of questions. And he began to tell me about the history of the jinn. And uh, and he began to tell me about, and then finally he mentioned in Oman, the meeting place of the jinn, an area where the jinn enter our world that he knew about. And uh, that led my trip to Oman with this captain on a private jet, actually, and we landed at the airport. It was a very nice mm-hmm. trip. It was a short trip, actually. And then... There, we arranged for, when we got into the town of Finn, we got we arranged for someone to meet us there who would be our guide and interpreter. So this was all arranged for me primarily by the um, members of the Saudi government. Otherwise, I would have never have been able to establish these contacts in these areas. And, um, and, and so this is how I got my information. And I was quite fortunate almost like, you know, my gosh, you know, uh, did this all really happen? But um, I would say that going into Syria was probably the most dangerous of all. I heard that there were towns in Syria that were, in fact, controlled by jinn already. And um, I was in some pretty scary situations. Some of these situations were not mentioned in the vengeful jinn. Um, but most of my trip over there was. Okay, when you say controlled, how do you mean controlled? Controlled where they are literally in contact with or that they are, uh, like, share a body in a possession-type situation? Well, I'm not exactly sure, but from what I understand, entire towns and villages are controlled by jinn and also... Some jinn had made deals with head political leaders in certain countries, so that uh, in exchange for whatever the three wishes of the genie or whatever, um, so they can establish sort of like a beachhead into our world. And and with all of this rioting and unsettled um, things going on in Libya and 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 Egypt and so on and now you know there's talk about you know in in Iran there's break starting to break out I wouldn't be surprised if this is all a plot 
by Jin controlling this. And um, from what I understood over there, their main purpose is to come into our world. And where else would you want to establish a main portal into our world but in a place where everyone believes in you that you can manipulate and deal with? Hmm. Um, within the scope of contacting the jinn now you're talking about the history Suleiman or Solomon I guess is the way that we say it here in the west um, uh, uh, the, the lesser key of Solomon I believe it is is, is the basic manuscript for people conjuring and protecting so uh, how is it that these people are able to get in contact or is it the other way around where the jinn are contacting the humans well they can uh, they, they're contacting humans and oh. there's no conjuring of the jinn over there the jinn are there I mean uh. they've got entrances into our reality from there and this is what I understand and that there's strong interaction I mean, if you go over there, if you go in Oman, and you go over there and talk to people in certain villages near the Hajar Mountains, the idea of the jinn is just like you're talking about, you know, your neighbor down the street. I mean, mm -hmm. they, you know, they, they refer to them as God's other people. And talking about, you know, Solomon, you know, I think Rosemary can answer that better than okay. I can. Well, there are incantations for summoning the jinn as well as all kinds of spirits, um, and there are um, formulas for uh, conjuring them for divination or wealth or uh, prophecy, uh, e even for healing. But the thing about them is that they're very tricky and uh, unpredictable and often unreliable. Uh, mm. So engaging with them gets to be very problematic, uh, probably more so than entities that we would consider to be demons in our culture. Mm. Uh, there's a, a very strong trickster element to them. And, of course, being um, uh, masqueraders and shapeshifters, and their very name means hidden, the hidden ones, um, they're very slippery to deal with, and they have their own agendas. Uh, and these are things that are told in folklore uh, that the jinn once had a place in our world and were pushed out. Um, the Quran has a whole chapter in them, uh, in it about uh, how they got pushed out because uh, they would not, like the angels, uh, bow mm -hmm. to Adam when God created Adam. The jinn and the angels preceded uh, mm -hmm. the human race. And so a certain faction of the jinn uh, now want to reclaim their original homeland, which is our world. And uh, so uh, they will look for ways to infiltrate our world. And as Phil was mentioning, uh, it's easy for them to establish uh, areas in a culture that's very familiar with them, like the Middle East. In the West, we're very naive about them because we never really absorb them beyond fairy tales and folklores. You know, we, we sort of sillified them, as I say, um, by just considering them to be the genie in the bottle. But when Phil and I examined a lot of our unexplainable cases from UFOs, entity contacts, negative hauntings, uh, certain possession cases, 
uh, we began to see patterns that really fit what we had learned about the jinn. And, in fact, a deeper investigation uh, has convinced us that they have uh, quite a few areas all over, including this country, that um, we feel that they occupy. And uh, they're, um, they're very problematic to deal with. What, what specifically was, uh, I mean, I would have to ask, correlating the two different things, you know, the, the, what, what the West looks at uh, uh, religiously as uh, needing an exorcism, a, a possession, um, versus a jinn, how, what made you realize specifically that they were jinn rather than the other? Well, sometimes it, it does get to be difficult to know, and in fact, uh, sometimes they're identified sort of by a process of elimination. Oh. Uh, they, they tend to resist what I would call conventional exorcism or uh, clearing techniques. Mm. Uh, if, and in fact, it's written about in all the commentaries, Middle Eastern commentaries about the jinn, that right. if they don't want to go, they're not going to go. They may, uh, weaker ones may, may be persuaded to go, uh, or they may appear to go if they uh, want to play along with you. But if they're determined to stay uh, and cause problems, they're very, very difficult, if not impossible, to get rid of. So coming in and throwing holy water around, for example, in a, a conventional Catholic-style exorcism is not going to have any effect on them. Uh, we have a case in, in the Hudson Valley here that uh, we've been looking at now for over a year where the, the pe people are living in what we think is a portal area, and there is a gin presence there, and they've tried... Um, clearing uh, techniques that ghost hunting groups have applied. They've tried uh, Protestant and Catholic exorcisms, shamanic exorcisms, even Taoist exorcisms, and nothing gets rid of it. Um, it may dampen the activity down for a while. Uh, so the, the jinn tend to be very determined to stay. Uh, they uh, often look down at us. Um, and um, they can cause a variety of health problems, uh, and demonic entities can too. There are a lot of characteristics that aren't exclusive to the jinn, but um, they're, they're very adept at uh, causing low-grade to major uh, health issues. And also in investigations, this is something that I've noticed that's a little different from a lot of demonic cases that I've investigated. Uh, in demonic cases, uh, when the, the entities always seem to know when you're coming, and uh, with demonic cases, there's often activity before you get there. You know, thing you might have poltergeist mm -hmm. stuff in your house or whatever. But mm -hmm. the jinn seem to make very definite preemptive strikes, and uh, in some cases, it's like knocking out the investigators or the principals in the case with some health problem or emergency or a situation that uh, either takes them out of the action or causes the whole thing to be postponed, uh, mm -hmm. something like that. Um, so it's a, it's a little more aggressive, I would say, than uh, a lot of other negative entities that we deal with in uh, paranormal investigations. Environmentally speaking, 
would you say that there are certain factors that would make them more uh, comfortable in in manifesting r- rather than other places? Is there you you he had mentioned vortex, and then you had uh, said you know the same uh, along the same lines. Is are there particular places that are more uh, relatively inviting to them than others? Is it activity that causes them to be able to come where people are dabbling or they're just more susceptible? Uh, is okay. it is it a lifestyle or or is it is it do you have to be uh, from the descent from the Middle East? Oh, absolutely not. Uh, they do get interested in some people for a variety of reasons. They might become infatuated with them or fascinated by them or uh, maybe they're easy to latch on to, like people who have these, um, you know, they're encounter-prone people. Mm. Uh, and there are certain uh, areas that, that seem to be more uh, conducive to this sort of presence. And, uh, uh, Phil, you might want to talk about some of the characteristics of the portal areas we've been, we've been looking at, uh, you know, negative magnetic anomalies and... Um, some areas that have these abandoned mine shafts in them. Um. Yeah, well, um, you know, in, in order in order to really get a good gra- good grasp on this, you have to realize that um, when we're dealing with jinn, we're we're most likely dealing with uh, intelligent entities that exist in um, another dimension, and that's not like a saying like a higher plane of existence or whatever, a magical place that's spiritual, this is a physical place that's within our world. It's an area that we can't see. So the frightening thought about this is that, as they believe in the Middle East, they believe that jinn are invisible. Well, they're not really invisible. We just can't see them, but they seem to be able to detect us quite easily. There are areas where the jinn presence is more prominent. Now, of course, in the Middle East, I could not do magnetic studies over there. I mean, you know, that would just be impossible. But over in the United States, where there's areas of intense paranormal phenomena, I have been able to do it with, you know, magnetometer studies. And this is, you know, real scientific work, which was graphed and everything. And we came across, you know, surprising result. These areas are negative magnetic anomalies. In other words, where you have an unnatural drop in the Earth's magnetic field. Right. And the diagrams, cross diagrams, are all the same. You have this, uh, you have the Earth's magnetic field, you have this increase, and all of a sudden it drops down into like a Mm V-shape. And that's the area of the anomaly itself. And the thing is, is that according to legend, Allah made the angels from light. He made Adam from the mud and the clay, which is molecules and atoms. The angels were made from light, photonic energy, photons, and the jinn were made from smokeless fire, which to me as a scientist, that sounds like plasma. So Uh, in any case, jinn composed of plasma, here we go, beings that don't have a definite shape. They can alter their shape by redefining their magnetic fields and being beings of plasma they would be very susceptible to magnetic fields so you would want to they would want to enter our world 
in areas of negative magnetic anomalies. And what I found out so far is that these anomalies exist. They appear and disappear depending upon a number of different conditions and the area involved. And uh, they almost form like loops where you have an area outside the loop that's very high in magnetic magnetic anomalies outside, but inside one small area, it drops considerably. So to, to me, that seems like it's the area of the portal. We've been doing quite a bit of research in this, and this is where jinn may enter our universe. Now, the, the thing you have to ask yourself is, are jinn artificially creating these areas, or are they naturally formed and they're just waiting for them to open so that they can enter into our reality? Well, it probably works both ways. And also you have to consider this. When we're talking about jinn, it's not a one mentality. It's not like one mentality when people talk about demons or something like that. Jinn are individuals. I mean, they have many likes, dislikes. They're just like people with all the different interests and everything like that, different beliefs and so on. So every time you deal with a particular jinn, the fact that you're dealing with one is an interesting fact at that because in some of these cases where there's obviously harm being done, um, you could be dealing with psychotic jinn. Or, in some cases, where there seems to be playfulness, and, and you may be dealing with a very young jinn. Jinn have families, just like humans. They marry, there's male and female, and they have a child. They have children, and as the child gets older, they learn more, and they gain more power, just like human beings. As they progressively get older, they gain more knowledge, and they become more powerful. And, uh, however, some people can go from birth all the way to 80 years old and practically learn nothing. The same thing with jinn. So you have different jinn at different power levels. The ones that are entering our reality are probably ones that are very powerful, very old jinn. And there's a legend that says that many of the jinn are good. They just don't want to deal with humans. They don't want to bother with us. Some of them are very curious about us. They're almost fascinated with the human race because some of them have never seen humans before. But they're also jinn who sort of like have one thing and one goal in mind. That's the destruction of the human race so they can retake this world. Just like humans like chocolate ice cream, vanilla ice cream, straw, whatever. They're jinn who like, and like, like and dislike different things. These are individuals. So one jinn that you have contact with, the next one may be totally different in a personality. Also, one other thing about possession. Jinn don't seem to enter the body. They attach themselves from outside the body. This way, they... They can experience all the physical pleasures. And according to what I understand, this is what they like to do. They will make deals with people so that they could connect into their body and control them to experience physical sensation, to experience eating, to experience, you know, sex and things like that. Because mm -hmm. they can't do it. 
and uh, they can't experience this stuff. Also, when there's a case of jinn possession in the Middle East, a holy man will come along, or a Muslim cleric, Muslim cleric, and sit down with the jinn who's in the person and bargain with them. How long do you plan to stay in this body? Okay, here's the deal. You stay in the body for a week, and then you leave. You can experience all of these things, and so on and so on, and then you leave. And the jinn will say, okay, I'll do that. In many cases, they do. But in some cases, they won't leave the body, because now, gee, this is great, I mean, in a physical body. So the next step in the Middle East, they start beating the body. They start beating up the possessed person to make it so uncomfortable to the jinn, because the jinn can feel the pain, so the jinn will leave. There's even stories about, for example, um, young husbands who get approached by a jinn, and they're married to a very beautiful woman, and the jinn may come, a male jinn may come and say, I will give you a number of wishes, anything you want, but the deal is, you let me have your body for a while so I can experience time with your wife. And the person may say, wow, this is going to be great. But you can never trust them, because there's one particular story that I heard over there that the individual committed murder. And all of a sudden, he's at trial, ready to be executed, and the jinn says goodbye, and all of a sudden, he comes back in conscious control, and he's being condemned to death. So you have stories like this, that jinn cannot be trusted uh, when you deal with them, even though throughout time people have made deal, deals with, with jinn entities. Hmm. Now that, that Phil, you know, a couple things intrigued me about what you said, because um, first of all, the, uh, when you were talking about the magnetic anomalies, um, some, one of the ongoing research projects I have is involving transdimensional communication. And I have a device that I've been, you know, I built and I've been experimenting with that uses uh, a laser as a carrier wave for communi- you know, actual communications. I, I modulate the laser, but I surround it with uh, about an 80,000 volt charge uh, in a vacuum. And then I also have magnetic compression. And I discovered a lot of this by trial and error, but uh, I found that when I, by magnetic compression, I mean I have two magnetic fields, both with uh, like the North Pole and the North Pole of the field, uh, compressing against each other right in the center of this device where the laser shoots through. And the my hypothesis with this is that the uh, the combination of the magnetic fields and the high energy causes a, a disturbance in the, the elastic skin of um, the barrier that separates our dimensions and opens up little like pinholes, portals for energy to travel. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm still experimenting with it. It's, it's a type of thing it's hard to, to actually prove because we can't measure that type of energy with scientific equipment. But um, I find when I change the pressure, the magnetic compression, is when I get the most results. I have um, some communications that are as clear as what you're hearing me say right now, and sometimes it's only a couple words, and I've had as long as a minute conversation, a two-way conversation, because I have the ability to 
inject my my own voice into the stream that's only happened once but um i find it interesting that you're you're finding uh, correlations with uh, the the negative magnetic anomalies in the um the earth itself you know as possible portals and you're speaking of actual the magnetic field, not the gravitational field, correct? Speaking of the magnetic field. However, the gravitational field has something also to do with it, because um, one of the ways that we can actually detect that these portals are opening up is by in, a, in an attempt, in a secondary attempt to try to detect gravitons. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, theoretically... You know, I've been doing a lot of work on this. I actually wrote a paper for the MIT uh, the Journal of Physics and Chemistry on detecting gravitons. And theoretically, you know, um, a, a, a graviton is an elementary particle, theoretical, and it, if it exists, it should absorb into electrons, um, mm-hmm. much like a photon. So, so the fact is, Marcus, is that you could be creating, and I, always, and I state in the paper that all you have to do is open up a portal that's the size of an atom, and you can get an electromagnetic wave through it. Normally, photons are going to be restricted to the curvature of space um, in our dimensional reality, and photons will not bleed into these other dimensions unless these portals are opened up and the way to do this is like bend, bend space so that you actually funnel that dimension into ours. And this can be done by creating intense magnetic fields. And if you do that in a very small area, yes, you can. I believe, and I believe it's been done. I believe it happens naturally in the Earth sometimes in some areas that you can create a portal area the size of a nucleus and still get an electromagnetic signal and get messages from these other dimensional realities. And in some cases, they may know that you're trying to contact them, and in some cases, they may not, and you may be eavesdropping on them. But Rosemary and I have done some very fascinating work in the last couple of years involving this. And um, um, I've been working on a number of different equipment and so on. But we have a book coming out also in December called Portals. Uh-huh. And it focuses on the research that we're, we, we, we're actually still engaged in. And so, actually, it's fascinating. I mean, a lot of this stuff is, is so real because we've had conversations with entities that have identified themselves as jinn through EVP. And I was a great disbeliever in EVP for a very long time until Rosemary started playing some of her stuff, and then I started experimenting with her with some stuff. We started modifying some equipment and so on and so on. And I'll tell you, I can't discount what's coming through. And plus, I was able to analyze many of the signals, and those signals are coming in piggyback. Otherwise, they're not coming in piggyback on a, on a stronger AM signal. You would not hear yeah. them. I mean, so they're piggybacking. There's two separate certain signals. One is piggybacking on the other, and this signal's coming from somewhere. I mean, we see the same effect in ham radio. For example, if um, you turn on a certain particular frequency, maybe somewhere in the 10-meter range or something, and you hear certain voices and people talking, 
at night you may not hear much of anything. Now, if someone comes next to you, let's say a mile away, and just transmits a dead carrier, I mean, uh-huh. just a signal, an unmodulated signal, what happens is that carrier wave comes to your receiver, and then all of a sudden in the background you hear voices, and they sound a little distorted. But these voices are actually other ham radio stations a thousand miles away. Normally, your receiver would not hear them, but they're piggybacking on that dead carrier signal to come into your receiver. This is how much of the radio sweep EVP is received. Mm -hmm. And um, I find it very fascinating. That's that's what we've been using is the uh, radio sweep technology. And uh, I think you remember uh, a couple of years ago, you sent me a CD, Marcus, with some tones Mm -hmm. on it. And uh, we've experimented with that. And uh, when we use the the Frank's box or ghost box in combination with the CD and the tones, uh, we tended to get more messages than without the CD. Mm. Yeah, that's kind of what I was curious because I I used some of those tones. I I ended up using even music. I I found some of the uh, flute music that I played through uh, my device would actually generate more more, uh, contact. And um, with uh, the... yeah, yeah, with the with the sweep frequencies that you're talking about, uh, in my own research of that, it's that's totally different than the technology that you know I'm developing here. But in uh, when I experimented with that and was analyzing it, I I found that when you know when those uh, sweeps occur, when you know as the frequencies change in the capacitors, you know discharge that uh, shifted over. The um, right at the point where where there's a shift, you know, into another frequency is where a lot of the communications were coming in on. Like you like you say, Phil, they were kind of piggybacked, and um, it's it's something right at the point, right where the capacitors fire is is what I was finding more than any other point. And uh, you know, and it's you know for for a long time, I I think has to do with the the people around too. I think human intention. You know, has a definite effect on it. Uh, with um, you know, because a lot of times I'll sit there and, and listen to that for an hour, and all I get is a headache, and uh, you know, I, I don't pick up on anything. But uh, I, I think with certain individuals, they generate an, an energy field that um, is different than you know, different human uh, energy fields. There, there may be a different frequency. Uh, it's what makes a difference between a normal person, a psychic, and a you know a physical medium, and um, that may in some way you know, op- help open up portals. And as much as I hate to leave you hanging, this is the end of tonight's show. We will be welcoming back Rosemary and Phil in next week's show, so be sure to tune in to the Shaman's Brew then. Until then. This is Marcus Leader, and you have been listening to The Shaman's Brew on Jackalope Radio.